You're listening to RevOps FM with Justin Norris. Well, over 15 years ago, we saw the rise of the freemium phenomena in B2B SaaS. Companies like Box, MailChimp, and FreshBooks went to market not just through an army of salespeople, but in a bottom-up way. They offered a free plan that users could get immediate value from with the hope of converting a portion of those free users to paying ones somewhere down the road. So if we fast forward today, we have the hot topic of product-led growth, which in many ways sounds similar. And so what I want to look at really is what the PLG phenomena is all about. What does it mean? Who's doing it well? What are the best playbooks? And what does it mean for ops practitioners? Because if you're living in a PLG world, it has some big implications for your data, your processes, your tech stack, and a lot more. So to help guide us through all this in the world of PLG, we have today my friend Dave Rigotti. He is the co-founder of Inflection.io and host of the PLGTM conference. Dave and I go way back to when he was the VP of Marketing at Visible, and we're going to talk about his journey there as well as his experience creating a new marketing automation platform specifically designed for the needs of PLG companies. Dave, so excited to have you here. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So nice to talk with you as always. And thanks for having me on the podcast. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Dave, why don't we start broad with your take on what PLG is? I alluded to a few companies that have been doing something at least PLG-like for a long time. I know even back in 2010, I was working at a product that was primarily free trial, transactional, pay with a credit card. So it's not necessarily that that process is new, but we have seemed to enter into an area where we've developed a new category for this. How do you think about that? Yeah, I tend to have a slightly broader view of PLG than I think a lot of people do. So we always think of the Dropboxes, the Airtables, the Canvas, the Figmas, all great examples and should be held on a pedestal of shining stars of what PLG is. But I think that's just one way to think about PLG. If you have a online signup for your product, you don't have to talk with a salesperson to use the product, or you don't have to have somebody handhold you through like an implementation. That can mean both companies that have both sales-led motions and product-led motions. See this a lot. Like a lot of product-led companies aren't these bottoms up native. You can buy it for $15 a month products where they're born as PLG and they're still seen as PLG. And they're more like Sendoso, where for a long time, Sendoso was a sales-led company. You had to talk with the salesperson. You got to go through an implementation process. And that's still true for their main product. But now they have a secondary product, Sendoso Express, where you can just sign up for it online. If you were to ask somebody, is Sendoso a a product-led company? The answer is usually no. But for me, it's a yes. Maybe it's not the main thing or the shining thing like you would have at a at a Slack or a Canva, but they have some kind of product-led motion. And to me, if you're getting money from online signups, you're a product-led company. I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of today's episode, Knack. You know, I love marketing automation software, but let's be honest, the email and landing page builders are usually terrible. You can't make it nice without a developer and marketers are going to find a way to break things or go off brand. You do not have time for that. So Knack is totally different. You set the guidelines and then give your users a building experience that's slick, modern, and beautiful. 
When they're done, everything goes to your map at the push of a button. And don't worry, it supports global teams, approval workflows, it's got your integrations. So head on over to revops.fm forward slash NAC, that's K-N-A-K, and get a special offer just for my listeners. Definitionally, we're really looking at if you have a motion where in the absence of interaction with a person, you can interact directly with the product and conduct business with that company in that way, you have at least a product-led arm to what you're doing. Bingo. You have a product-led motion. Maybe you're not a product-led company. Maybe that's a good way to think about it. But yes, I would agree with you there. Aside from the fact that marketers and analysts and VC firms like to take things that have already existed and brand them and make them a big thing, is there another reason that in the past few years, all of a sudden, everyone's talking about product-led has become the same big thing, given that this type of way of going to market has existed for so many years before that? I think it's just consumer preferences of liking to try before you buy or wanting just to dive right in and have your own sales journey, like all of the benefits that people see from being product-led. You're just feeling it more and more and more. And hey, I'd rather try out the product than trust what a salesperson is going to tell me as part of the sales process. Or I want to implement today, not in a month after we get through a long, complex contract negotiation. I think that's such a huge part of it is just the consumer preferences. And we're seeing VCs like to back their pattern matchers. So they'll look at what's been successful. Let's go back that again. You've now had the first wave of product-led companies be uber successful. Go look at most of the best B2B SaaS companies that are that are public companies. They're product-led. Now you have inputs to say, okay, great, we should go back more product-led businesses. Like We should give more seed rounds, more A rounds. So I think that's been a part of it for sure. I hadn't thought of it this way before, but you also talked about the idea of trust. And I have seen many marketing ops or rev ops professionals lately, and I feel this way myself, say, you know, I'm just not going to buy a product that I can't touch and see first because they have been burned so many times by, you know, no matter how much due diligence you do, you never know exactly how the product is going to work until you're in it. And I think that's so important now. We've all been burned. We've been around too long, you and me. Yeah. No trust, cynical. You've probably have expressed this to some degree in what you just said, but is that why you decided to focus your energies here? You know, we'll talk a little bit about inflection in your journey there, but what made you really laser in on this way of going to market? The reason we serve the product-led industry is because it's a different way of going to market, yet most of the solutions for go-to-market teams at product-led companies were all built for the sales-led motion. So we'll talk more about Marketo, but it's just a good example. Product-led businesses, the, the CRM is no longer the center of the universe or the source of truth of data. Not everything's in there anymore. You have tons of data in a data warehouse. You have data that you're collecting about your users in, in your product, what features they've used, what buttons they clicked, or whatever, that you want to go orchestrate journeys around. So for us, we started with it because there's a lot of data that product-led companies have. They want to go do something with. They haven't been able to before. It's really difficult for them. So we've created our product to make that much easier for them. 12 years ago, I was at a company called ClearFit, was product-led and transactional to boot. And we were using Marketo, and it was super cool for a lot of the things we were doing. But all of the playbooks, all of the ways of thinking around it, like the life cycle, the scoring, the reporting, none of it worked for what we were doing. It was all based on enterprise sales motions 
that was the type of company that Marketo primarily served. It was really feeling in a lot of ways like square peg, round hole for me. There's all that data that's really hard to bring in. Also, if you have 50 million users, you can't put that in Marketo. It won't work. Even if you did, the pricing and packaging doesn't make sense and all this other stuff. So it was a good focus for us. So I imagine there's a lot of companies that are feeling like breath of fresh air, signing up with inflection and feeling like, whoa, like a tool that's actually designed for the way I want to go to market. And so from observing that customer base, I'd love to just get a little bit tactical, sign up for a free trial, send a welcome email. There's that sort of standard thing, but going a little bit deeper, what are the playbooks of top PLG companies today in your experience? First of all, there's so much on the data side. So I talked about Salesforce already. Some Mops Pros have admin access in Salesforce, not always, but have influence over the data set up in Salesforce. What data is in there, what fields are on what objects, and can go influence that. A lot of the times now you're working with data teams or developers or IT in some companies on schemas and Snowflake and what data is in Snowflake and how often is that data being put into the data warehouse that we want to go do something with. If it's dumped in every night, that's probably way too long to go trigger a welcome email. Or if you're trying to do something like an upsell campaign, if somebody's interacted with a feature and you want to go send them an email about a more premium version, or it's a good signal that they're ready for the enterprise plan, but that feature isn't tagged in the product to fire an event, you're already lost. You need to go work with the teams on that super tactically, there's like a whole set of things around working with data teams, engineering teams, learning product events, like understanding schemas that is brand new to most Mops pros and and RevOps folks. So once you get over that, the campaigns that we see almost everyone start with is an onboarding campaign. And I know you were like, oh, like, yeah, 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 the trial, nurture, whatever. Yes, But it's where everyone starts because everyone's got a 24-hour drip nurture for their welcome sequence. And then if you can get access to that product data, you can make it way more smart. So if it's time to send them email uh, step number three and they've already done it, skip it. Tell them about step number four. Or if it's time for step number four and they haven't done step number three, don't tell them to do yet another thing. Send them a reminder to do step number three. It's totally block and tackle and it sounds so boring. But we've seen customers get 20% boost in product adoption from doing that. And that just has huge impacts on renewals and churn and NRR. And you now have an engaged customer or an adopted customer that you can use for upsells later down the road. So I think it's it sounds boring almost, but it's such a good thing to go do. The key differentiator that you mentioned is that a lot of the time it is just 24-hour wait. It's kind of just a canned email wait type of thing versus something that's smart. And I was curious, just with these emails, are you seeing most people send them from a marketing persona? Like, hey, it's Acme, we're emailing you. Is it a sock puppeted CS or sales type person? Like, hi, it's Dave from Inflection, I'm emailing you. Who's the sending persona? It's similar to a content download. You have a generic drip that goes out or like a similar thing to everyone. And then you overlay that with product specialists, either somebody that is assigned to them to help them onboard the product, or that's frankly a salesperson trying to get them to upsell or make sure they get into the right tier. So there's usually two sequences running, like a an onboarding one and then a person-based one just to the the right folks, just like you would have it on content download, like you would have a salesperson just follow up with good folks. Makes sense. 
Do you have your customers sending the person-based one from Inflection to, or are they using like a sales loft or an outreach to do that overlay? We see both. You can do that without a, out of Inflection. You can do tokens in the send from, reply to, stuff like that. So you could pull from Salesforce and say the account owner. But yeah, we see tools like a sales loft and outreach. And, and there's even tools specific around this for like this product-led sales category, like a Pocus or an Endgame. We see all of it. That's interesting. I had no idea about that. You alluded to like triggered upsell campaigns, which obviously makes a lot of sense. Is that usually just when people start poking around and pushing at the things that are locked? Or what are the types of triggers that you find are most indicative of a person being ready to go to the next level? We see locked features a lot. Like, hey, looks like you tried to set up SSO. That's not a part of your plan. It's part of the enterprise plan. Click your Here's my Calendly. Let's talk about upgrading to the enterprise plan. Certainly emails like that. Um, even emails like abandoned cart. So like you go, you've clicked upgrade, but that was all you did. And now you get an email, you know, four hours later the next day that says, hey, you started an upgrade, but you didn't finish. Or you started out a user, but you didn't finish. Like click here to finish. And we're seeing marketing teams deploy those emails and they're easy, two hours to set up. And they're generating six figures in ARR. And they'll send, you know, 50 emails a month. It's probably the highest ROI emails I've ever seen. And that's six figures of incremental ARR, like on top of whatever they were doing before that they can attribute. Yeah. So what's the psychology there? Do you wonder, is it just, oh, I was looking at it. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. But it's a low enough threshold that just by reaching out to that person, you can help them cross that divide. I don't know, man. It works. Like, that's all I know. I don't know why B2C companies do it, but everyone does it and it seems to work with B- b2c it's it's the impulse like yeah okay I, you know i can i will and i suppose if it's a low a low enough cost purchase can work the same way here the other email we see a lot justin is automated recaps so like Spotify, everyone talks about spotify and wrapped every year you know get an email that has all of the songs you listen to your top songs like some fun stats about you we're seeing b2b SaaS companies roll this out to all of their users every month or even i've seen once a week that it's just like, here's what you've done in the last week. And it's meant to essentially remind the user all the value that they're getting out of your product. Or another way to think about it is all the success that they're having out with your product. And these emails have, they're very high volume and they have very high open rates and high engagement rates. So it's always a good opportunity to kind of get in front of the users with your brand and the value that you're bringing. You can always push other messages like, hey, you're like, you were super successful last week. Go leave a G2 review and even add people into those emails that maybe isn't even a user, like an executive. So they're almost like automated mini email based QBRs that are different for every single user, or at least every single account. That's a great example of, you know, it seems maybe like a simple email on the surface, but the level of data that's required to create that would be really difficult. It would require a lot of you know, engineering support to do it using a traditional marketing automation platform. How does that work in your platform? Do you do the roll-up of the stats in platform or are they doing those calculations outside and just pushing them in to Inflection? It's all in our product. You can sync certainly fields to Inflection, but you can also sync like tables. So, Or like if you connect us into Segment, for example, you don't have to go into Inflection and create fields for every seg- segment event in Inflection. We just 
we bring them all in. So we can ingest column data, like data from Salesforce, like here's the columns on the contact, but also stream data, like here's the stream of events this person's had via like a segment integration or a or Snowflake integration um, without having to go set that up. And then for like manipulating the data, it's essentially Excel built into the product. So you can do like count ifs and you can do, you can summarize fields. You can do some pretty complicated functions right in the product without having to like, you know, munch the data offline and re-upload it and try to stuff it in a field. That's huge. Let's, well, let's, let's go into the data topic in a little bit more detail because we've, we're there. So you've alluded a few times to like the challenges and, and some of the challenges that occur to me, or at least that I've personally experienced. There's the data structure. Can the tool accommodate the structure of the data that you have? There's latency. So like how close are you to the source of the data? And if you're pulling from a warehouse and then you've got, you know, at least this 24 hour leg, how much volume can it accommodate? What's the best practice way, I guess, that you're seeing companies use? Yeah, the best practice is to go to the product data source if you can. So whatever is actually tracking the product data, it's like not Snowflake. A great practice would be if you're using like Segment, for example, to like track all the product events. And I use Segment a lot because it's the most popular one. Would be to like for us would be to connect in Segment, connect in Salesforce. Now we essentially have a you know real time stream into Segment data and then a five minute stream into Salesforce. So if you wanted to kick off an email when somebody signs up with our product, it happens you know like right away. Um, and we just store all of this segment data in our product. So you don't have, you essentially bypass like a data warehouse in that case. So that's almost always preferred because it cuts out like a whole data team and a whole long set of questions about the frequency of data getting into like a snowflake or a data warehouse. Are all the events getting in there? Are they stored in a way that even makes sense that you could do something with? Data teams change formats and don't tell marketing and honestly, just like a whole set of things. So you have basically real-time streaming and you're getting it in the format that it's instrumented in the product. Yeah. Do you have to pre-configure inflection instance to like match that scheme or does it just sort of absorb what's what's coming in in a dynamic way? To your point about like the product team adds a new event, does it break your org or how does it work? We're already pre-formatted for standard CDPs or product tracking. So like segment, like you just connect it and a minute later, you have all the events um, in inflection. When a product team adds a new event, it just shows up in inflection. There's a whole little editor if you wanted to like change the names of it to make it more friendly, like remove underscore, underscore, whatever, 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 like make it marketer friendly. You can do that, but you don't need to. And so it's just available right there and all new events will get shown up. For data warehouse, you do just because everyone has a little bit of different setup in their data warehouse. There is like usually takes like an hour or two configuration to go through and essentially map inflection, mostly the standard fields in inflection to those fields in the data warehouse. Like which field is the first name? Which field is the email that you want us to use? Less standard or a company could decide it's actually not the field in a or the data in a data warehouse name. Email could be could be something else like and so they need to tell us and it usually takes a couple hours and if a company is using like snowplow or a different event tracker are you agnostic or do they need a specific integration for each one depends like we don't have a direct connection into snowplow so we'd say like great like go get that into snowflake or redshift or bigquery or whatever and then we'll connect to the data warehouse you know like a segment we have a direct connection to so it, it kind of depends right now and it's we're adding new ones all the time that makes sense 
So we've sort of moved into the PLG ops considerations from my point of view. And one of the things I wonder if you agree with this, I actually found this way of doing ops a lot more fun because <laughs> so it'd be more fun, but just there was a dimension of fun that you don't always get to have. Maybe because you don't have that sales team, BDR team that you need to work through. You're having really direct access to the end user at all these different stages and can use automation really to its full extent and capability. Do you agree with that statement? From a MOPS perspective, PLG presents an opportunity and a challenge. I've seen MOPS pros at PLG companies and RevOps pros. Um, no, they're no longer in tech. They were at a PLG company last two years. In 22, 2022 or 2023, they left tech. I think one's starting a coffee shop. Another one has just left marketing uh, and is doing something else. It burnt them out? Extreme burnt them out. You and I have been around for a while. I never saw that before. And so challenge and opportunity. The challenge is like you very quickly have to become an expert on segments, data warehouses and structures and like interacting with data teams and engineers and product managers and this like whole tier of stakeholders and dependencies that you never had before. You used to have most of the keys to the kingdom and you could control it and you would know it. Now that's not the case. And that leads to a lot of burnout. It's also... I think an opportunity for MOPS to step up and be a leader in the marketing organization. I hear a lot of RevOps MOPS people complain about being ticket takers and going through the rhythm on campaigns. You now have an opportunity where nobody in marketing has ever thought about this stuff before. And you have an opportunity to kind of up level and grow in a career as a professional and, you know, or as a team leader. And this always happens on every new big tech wave. It's how I got my career started. I was was young and I got started in social media, right? As social media was happening and became like the little mini expert there. And it, it helps. Um, it definitely helps a lot. So I think there's a, a challenge and an opportunity. And, uh, but it's a lot of work. That makes sense. I, th- I, th- I mean, I think part of that opportunity piece, and, and I certainly wouldn't downplay the challenge either. You're right. But part of the opportunity piece is it gives you some of the immediacy of direct response. You know, where versus like, all right, I sent this email and then maybe they talked to sales and then, you know, using some complicated attribution algorithm that most people don't believe in, I'm, I'm going to figure out that I had some impact versus like, I did this thing and somebody gave me their credit card number. I have cash on the barrel now. Like, that's a huge difference. A hundred percent. I'd say one of the reasons why product led is so successful is because you can expand customers. So if you go look at at NRR of companies, they're making more from their existing customers a year later. Like churn doesn't affect them, basically. They're growing without having to even acquire new customers. And it's because you can like go expand. They have usage-based metrics to kind of go expand customers. That means like you can send a couple of emails, run a couple of campaigns, and like materially affect your business in a great way. You can make a lot of money from some simple email campaigns, which if your company's not done a lot of before, dude, those are some huge wins that generate revenue and pipeline like now, which is cool. That's super empowering. To that point, I mentioned earlier that the normal funnel you know, didn't really work for me when I was in PLG, like MQL, SQL, like it just doesn't compute, doesn't apply. I'm curious, how do you think about the PLG funnel? Because I think funnels are still generally important and useful as a model. How do you think about it conceptually? And then I'm also curious, how is it actually instrumented? What tools do you give marketers to instrument it inside inflection? Yeah, it's a good question. And 
I don't know if this is totally answered yet. I think we're all still figuring it out. I'd say, like you said, funnels, which I think is the right way to think about it. Because there's maybe you don't want to do a trial. You just want to talk to a salesperson. You're Fortune 500 customer. You wouldn't be able to sign up online anyways. So that is the sales-led funnel. Then there's somebody who signs up and self-service and self-expands. That's like pure PLG. Then there's PLG to sales-led. So they sign up, they use your product, and um, now they're ready for the enterprise plan. And you need to go like get them into the sales funnel, even though they're existing customer. You know, so really an expansion play, but it's like getting to a sales-led funnel. I don't think it's answered exactly what all those look like and how they work. A huge topic and one that we'll have a session on at PLGTM is it's like attribution for all of that. Like the attribution like super breaks at PLG companies for for these reasons. Like people come in and out of different funnels. For inflection specifically, we have a cool canvas builder, like a journey builder, and you can have certainly all kinds of branching and I don't want to get into like a product pitch, but you can have on one canvas, both the journeys for sales led PLG that can come back in, in between. And that's important because a lot of, especially big PLG companies today have to have one system for their sales led motion, like a Marketo, and then another system for their product led motion or communicating with their users, like a, like a Braze or Iterable. With Inflection, you could do both scenarios out of one product and have them in one canvas and a user can move in between and they can kind of build and support each other like the different motions. You don't need two tools to do one thing. So just spitballing on this notion a little bit within the data structure, would it make sense? Like instead of one life cycle field, maybe you have two, like you've got like their product life cycle stage and then maybe like their sales life cycle stage. And maybe a user would go to the end of the product life cycle and never progress in the sales, or maybe they would like incrementally move up in both or vice versa. Is that a way to think about it? Yeah. There's like sales stages and then product adoption stages. Like where are you in the in the product adoption curve? I was going to ask this before, but just out of curiosity, is scoring still a relevant concept? You know, like scoring their product interest and you know, getting them to a product specialist, let's say. Definitely for the sales on motion, even for PLG to sales on motion, we see scoring a lot Maybe it's a little bit different. It's kind of more like customer TAM. All right, this customer is looking to learn more about our enterprise tier, but they're a five-person company. Their ability to pay is low. You should certainly treat that company differently from Microsoft looking to learn more about your enterprise tier. So I like to think about it as like expansion TAM because both of those companies might be paying you $1,000 a month today, but one customer has ability to pay a thousand times more and another one does not. So how do you segment that to focus your expansion team or your sales team on the right accounts? I think scoring is really relevant. It gets even more relevant if you have product specialists jumping on signups where you might have a million signups a month and you might have a team that's helping people get started with their trial or, you know, onboard appropriately, you know, like a 10 person team, like they have to focus. And so how do you figure that out, you need scoring. So going a bit deeper into that, the way I was thinking about this is that you can have PLG where it really just is, I sell a product that doesn't require sales and it's going to just be product led and you can get an upgrade and maybe it'll be a few hundred dollars a month, but that's where it is. And then you have PLG where it really is more just a bottom-up way of penetrating an enterprise. Like, yeah, I'll have a few people signing up from different apartments and we'll see that. And then we'll kind of send sales in 
on top of that. And that seems to create the possibility, well, there's a lot more challenges in coordination. We have those two motions running side by side at my current company, 360 Learning, and I see that. And your product specialist and your sales rep maybe stepping on each other's toes. And how have you seen people try to solve those problems? It's definitely a problem and not different, I think, in a lot of cases from like a content download where you have an SDR or an AE or marketing or invites to events. Like it's never perfectly coordinated. I'm also a fan of it like not being perfectly coordinated. Certainly you you couldn't send different pricing to the same person. You can't do that. But I've always been a fan of not being too coordinated, almost not having the perfect attribution model be a beautiful mind and just go crazy trying to coordinate it all. But there should be some level of coordination. I also always like, just like a content download, you might have somebody, the automatic nurturing from like a marketing automation and then like somebody coming in over the top. Those are never coordinated, but they're slightly different messages and they serve different purposes. So I like it being not perfectly coordinated. I also like it being different. Somebody helping you set up the product that is also selling you gets dicey real fast. They're almost always just going to go into figuring out very quickly, is this person going to upgrade or not? And I'm only going to focus on the ones that are going to upgrade. And I'm only going to do the bare minimum that I need to get an upgrade. The incentives aren't perfectly aligned. I think you touch on an interesting thing there because the user experience with a PLG company I feel like it tends to be warm and fuzzy. I mean, that's anecdotal and maybe just personal, but because those specialists are generally more just trying to help you succeed with something that you're doing rather than trying to just sell you something, and you just feel like you have an overall like more positive sentiment towards those companies. I know that's the feeling that we tried to create when we were doing this as a PLG company. It's like if you've ever walked into like a cell phone store, like you know that person that's helping you out with your phone is like, also the salesperson, <laughs> everything they say, and just like, is this really what's right for me? Or are they trying to get me to spend more money? So let's talk a little about your journey, Dave. I think the first time we actually interacted, we were on a webinar together. I want to say it was like 2015, you were at Visible. And then you had this amazing journey with Visible, you know, the fish ate the little fish, and then the bigger fish ate the, you know, Marketo bought Visible, then Adobe bought Marketo. So you ended up running like enterprise and enterprise motion at Marketo. And then you like spun off and are creating a next Marketo. Walk us through that a little bit. Yeah, I started my career. I went to university. I studied marketing and entrepreneurship. I've always loved startups, but I got recruited. I did an internship at Microsoft and I got recruited out of college to join Microsoft, which was too hard to pass up. And so that took me to Seattle for, and I just moved to New York a year ago. So I lived in Seattle for 13 years. And worked at Microsoft for almost five years on Bing, kind of right as Bing launched, both on the consumer marketing side. And then I switched to Bing ads and I was doing marketing for Bing ads and found my love. I was like, okay, I really love marketing. I really love B2B marketing, but I love startups. So how do I get to a startup? And I just kind of cold applied to Visible. It was Visible at that time as the first marketing hire, probably five or six. And Visible was just a tool to connect AdWords into Salesforce. That was like all I could do. You couldn't use it for attribution. It wasn't an attribution product yet. And so just got lucky with that. Worked with some great people who I'm still working with today. A lot of the ex-Visible co-founders and ex-Visible crew are co-founders. I love that you guys have done that. Yeah, we've worked together for over 10 years. 
it's a long time. If you find great people that you like to work with and push you and support you, just keep it going. So anyways, works at Visible, grew that business great, sold to Marketo in 2018, which was a great exit for everyone. And then I had to find a new job because I was running Marketing Visible. There's no more Visible. It's product to Marketo. So I started running enterprise demand generation and account-based marketing at Marketo. Six months later, we got gobbled up by Adobe. And so for another two years, I ran basically the same role at Adobe, but I took on increasingly larger portfolio of products that I was supporting. From being in a small startup, Invisible is an amazing group of people, but you're never more than 50 or 60, maybe when you're required, maybe a bit bigger. 120. 120. Okay. So bigger than I thought, but still, you know, smallish to 10,000 person behemoth. And I know what you know. it's like to work inside Adobe. It's a great company, but it's very different than the way the Visible operated. Was that a shock to the system for you? It was a shock. In all the classic reasons of startups first big companies, like it moves slower. You see oppor- marketing opportunities, but they're not big enough opportunities for the business to care about. So you just don't do them. Things like that would bother me a little bit. A lot of the Visible team is still there. So for so many people... This is five years later. It's been awesome for their careers. They're getting promoted. They're getting stock grants. They're making way more money than they ever did at a startup. So overall, on a whole, like it was awesome for so many people. And I liked it too for a while. It was a good place to chill out a little bit, make a little bit more money, honestly. And then I was there when the pandemic started. I was still at Adobe and Adobe was very early in supporting families. It was like one of the first companies to shut down the offices and was very like accommodating to an employees, which was nice for a while. But you know, I wanted to go do something and Aaron was on a long sabbatical after he left Marketo and Adobe and got back after a year sabbatical and hey, let's team up. Made sense to go at it again. The marketing automation category, when I first looked at it, you know, there was a lot of players that like don't exist anymore. There's like Manticore and Silver Pot. Like there was just like it was one of those wide open categories it felt like and then it really consolidated down I haven't really seen a new player for a while at least until infl- inflection emerged for me and it's i'll have to just say it's been so much fun seeing you on linkedin getting your emails the speed with which new features come out the agility the feeling of responsiveness to the market the feeling of like oh it's a company that's just like got energy it's moving it reminded me of the early days of marketo when like cheryl chavez would send you an email every three or four weeks and just like new features. It's like, it's Christmas every month. It's amazing. How are you finding that? How do you think about what you're doing? I'm asking three questions at one, but how is it like being able to roll stuff out so quickly? The second time around with startups are always, you make so many different decisions. You have so much benefit of hindsight. So when we sold Visible, I think we never got above 10 engineers. We have probably 25 engineers and we're a 30 person company. So 25 out of 30 employees, roughly, are engineers. Visible is like 10 out of 120. Part of it is just way more investment in product and feature development and product development. And it's the nature of marketing animation. Like you have a lot of features you need to go build and you need velocity of building that. That's been a big thing for us is investing way more there than we did last time around. And we're always like, let's go build a great product at Visible. I still believe it's a great product all these years after leaving. And so we're going to do that here at Inflection and, and we continue to do so and just have a lot more engineers. Now that you mentioned uh, Visible and for the record of listeners, like I used Visible as early as 2015. We were an early partner of yours. Like I love Visible, huge fan of it. 
does it hurt a little bit to see it get acquired and then kind of not change anymore and to see newer competitors enter the market and come up on top of it a little bit? Not at all. Not at all. Done with it. I still chat with people to like help them out, but no, that's a past life. I'm surprised it still exists at Adobe. So many products at that ARR size it's at, at a company like Adobe would get shut down. <laughs> it wouldn't exist. And so I'm actually surprised it's still a thing and Marketo Engage Measure or whatever it's called now. That probably stung me a little bit. Maybe the name change. Just the product marketing aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. Not that they changed the name. Actually, change it whatever. But that's what we picked. That's what you ended up going with. Adobe Marketo Engage Measure Advanced Enterprise Edition. That hurts me. I didn't build it. I had 10 other options that you could have gone with. But no, that's old history. I know it probably feels premature to even ask this question, but where do you see inflection go? Because every product seems to follow this curve of like, it's young, it's dynamic, it has energy, it gets big, and then it gets bought, stagnates, and then the cycle repeats. Do you have, a, as a second time founder and startup innovator, do you have a plan to stop that from happening? Or how do you think about that? We're going big. We are very focused and we're very methodical when we're thinking about inflection. This is before you even like to go build what is now inflection. Let's go pick something that can become a public company. At Visible, we ended up happening, building the product, and there's a whole story there why. And it was started as 99x a month and just kind of growing and growing and growing, getting as big as you can. But look like attribution companies don't become IPOable, venture scale, true businesses. Marketing automation absolutely does. And so we were very intentional about going after a space that has the potential to build a big business. And we're very focused on placing bets now to help us become a big business. And I don't mean like big and slow. I mean, like it's important for us to stay motivated that we're building a big company. But yeah, I think there'll be tons of things I do that I want to do in five, six years to help fuel the energy at our company. I've seen some companies attract really good founder type people. Rippling is very good at this. They put almost like founders on like each of their products that they roll out. And each product is like a mini startup. And they're not even products. They're just like big features within their products. Eventually, like we'll do that. Eventually, like I even want to have, hey, if you come here and then later you leave inflection after a couple of years and you go start a company, I'll give you your first hundred thousand. Like I'll write your C check for you or your pre-seed check or whatever it's going to be called then and just attract people that are motivated people to keep that energy and that speed as long as possible. So my takeaway from what you're saying is you perceive the problem to be structural and you think you could solve it structurally by having a big company that still has that individual companies within companies or like incubating companies within the larger company and giving founder type persons ownership of those. Growth solves all problems. I always believe this in startups. If you're not growing anymore as a company, you're not going to attract the best people. And then it just is a cycle from there. So excited for what you folks are doing, Dave, and a big fan and supporter of yours, as you know, and we'll watch it carefully. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me. Big fan of yours too. And glad that we're eight, nine years later, we're still hanging out. And next time you're in New York, let me know. We can hang out in person. Absolutely. Thanks, Dave. We'll speak again. Hey everyone, I want to invite you over to the RevOps FM Substack community, where you can sign up to get rough transcripts, show notes, longer form articles, and other bonus content. Just head over to revops.fm slash subscribe to get free access. 
I'd also love to know what you thought of the episode and to hear suggestions for topics you want to learn about. Feel free to leave a comment on Substack or send me an email at justin at revops.fm. Thanks for listening.